0: Your word and hear you speak to us. So praise, glory, and honour may flow to you. Amen. you. On the twentieth of October, seventeen forty-three, the great Methodist evangelist John Wesley was preaching in the Black Country town of Wensbury, where IKEA is these days. <laughs> He'd first visited in January of that year. He'd had a good welcome. There was a growing number of Methodists. But by April, things were different. There was hostility in the air, fuelled by the vicar of the parish church, the Reverend Edward Eginton. He's been described as an unscrupulous man committed almost to the point of obsession to destroy a movement which threatened the cosy complacency of religious life in his parish. 267 years later, I arrived in that church. <laughs> but back in uh, 1743, riots were breaking out against the Methodists. They weren't necessarily a denomination by then, but they were certainly <clears throat> forming groups of prayer and Bible study uh, to support one another. And um, mobs would, would gather in the churchyard of St. Bartholomew's Church, Wensbury. Uh, be urged on by the troublesome church wardens of the day and Methodists were having their homes looted on that October day 20th of October, John Wesley preached in the morning, he was in the home of one of those Methodists, a mob gathered outside, took him out and they kind of travelled around trying to find any magistrate who would lock him up there was violence, a large stone was hurled through the air it almost ended Wesley's life quite a story. At one point, a woman who wanted to protect Wesley charged into the middle of the mob and knocked out four men. <laughs> they are tough ladies in the black country. <laughs> a very significant factor in that hostility and the riots was the changed lives of those early Methodists. So there's a, there's a, a well-known boxer he stopped fighting. There's a man called John Sheldon who was converted and the first thing he did was go home and sell off the fighting cocks, you know, the cockerels that used to do fighting. He sold them off. Uh, John Griffiths Jr. offended his former companions because, quote, he would not drink and game and break the Sabbath with them as he used to do. A local sportsman is reputed to have said, I'll tell thee lads, if we don't put a stop to these Methodists as goes about preaching and praying, there'll be no more sportsmen left us by and by. It was to change lives and it was the fact that each Christians stopped doing particular things. That was what caused the aggro. Living good lives as Christians can bring about hostility and hardship. As you come to Jesus, you're called out of darkness into his wonderful light and you become light the light exposes what's hidden in darkness light reveals that the darkness is darkness <coughs> jesus divides light from darkness we thought about already what jesus unites suffering and glory ordinary life and god's eternal purposes brought together in jesus to this second session jesus divides In two ways. First of all, in 1 Peter we see Jesus dividing us from ourselves. So have a look at chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. There's a contrast here between evil human desires and the will of God. <coughs> Actually, the word evil isn't there. So, more literally, it's um, the contrast is human desires versus the will of God. Now, the word evil has been added to help clarify that not all our desires are wrong. If, you, if you're sitting here in the middle of lockdown, you really want to go see family members, and you desired above all to go and see them, that is not wrong, that is not evil. So it's not wrong to put the word evil in here, to make it clear that there are good desires and bad desires, but on the other hand, Peter is in broad brushstrokes saying basically you can divide between your desires and God's will. It's not true in every single circumstance, but as a general rule of thumb, they are different. And so Peter shows us that Jesus wants to divide us from our own desires, to follow rather the will of God. And this phrase comes up a few times in the letters, one of those themes that again, as I said, as you go through this sermon series in the coming months, you'll spot these things again and again. So chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, we've, we've had it already. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. It's not again, it's not the word um, sinful, is interpretation, a right interpretation, but it's literally fleshly desires. Which is a kind of way of saying the things that arise naturally within us. He says these desires are natural, inbuilt desires, often wage war against your soul. It's a battle. So arm yourself. And he started at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This is where the first reference to desires. As obedient children, chapter 1, verse 14, do not conform to the desires, evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So again, the, there's a contrast being assumed here between our desires and the holiness of God. And Peter is saying, the desires you had uh, when you were just come living a life without Christ, that was living in ignorance. Now, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know that you don't know Jesus. You don't know that you're ignorant, but, but Peter's saying, the natural desires of the, of us, just kind of normal to this world, are actually ignorant. They're not truth. They're ignorance, and they're contrary to holiness. So, can you see what Peter's doing? These three references across the letter to uh, desire versus God's will, desire as things that wage war against our soul and contrary to the good life, and natural desires contrary to holiness, and those natural desires are are, our ignorance, life in ignorance. And Peter wants to see us, to divide us from ourselves, to see the Christian life as a battle. Back in chapter 4, arm yourselves with this attitude. Jesus suffered in his body, And arm yourself with this attitude. So that armed for the battle, you don't live your earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. Do you see the Christian life as a battle, as a war which is raging? And you need to assume that your desires are the enemy. And therefore, in this battle, as you fight yourself, as Peter shows us Jesus dividing us from ourselves, there, of course, will be suffering. It will feel like I'm being torn apart. In fact, in this battle, it's not just that you have got to suffer to win. Suffering is the winning. Suffering is the winning when our desires are put to one side, and the will of God, and the holiness of God, and the good life as God's people takes priority. In 1 Peter, Jesus says, Dividing us from ourselves. And Jesus is. The example here. Now of course Jesus did not have. Evil desires coming from within. But even Christ. Had to surrender his will to God's will. He, he willingly gave up his will. In love and trust of his father. And resulted in suffering. In his body. And then death on the cross. And since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with that same attitude. Verse 1, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now he's not saying, if I suffer, I will never sin again. It's rather, if following Christ, if obedience to the Lord, and you know it's going to bring suffering, but you do it anyway, it proves you really have made a decisive choice if following Jesus is exactly what you'd want to do right now, if Jesus said, right now I want you to, to eat ice cream, yeah. it wouldn't prove that you, unless you hate ice cream, it wouldn't prove that you've decisively chosen to follow God's will. But if God says, do this, and it battles your own desires and the ways of the world, and you still go with God's will, it proves you have made this decision, i am done with sin you still sin, but you're fundamentally done with sin. Peter addresses a, a few particular issues here in verse 3. We've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. By the way, when Peter uses the word pagan, um, if the word pagan brings to mind people in hoods uh, dancing in a circle dark and night with probably a dead goat somewhere, don't think that. Um, it's actually the word Gentiles. Which is so, this church, which is both Jew and Gentile, um, because he's redefined this church as the people of God. It means those who um, are Gentile and aren't believers are, are called Gentiles here. But just to stop us being confused about are the Gentiles good or bad? That's why the translation has gone for pagan. But I think pagan these days brings the wrong uh, the wrong mindset of kind of uh, people who yeah, yeah hoods and goats and. And um, dark, you know, flickering candles and pentagrams and all that kind of stuff. It's not really what it's all about. It's saying that the world out there, which is far from God, uh, life in that world is marked by debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And they're all about unrestrained desires. They're when desires for sex and food and drink. Um, are given full reign and self-control goes out of the window. That's what it's about. Often it is, Often like these are good things, but without the self-control, without the self-control, and, without, and just giving in to your desires and going with the flow. So, is alcohol bad? Well, the, the Bible says wine is given to gladden our hearts. And yet Christians should not get drunk. So you can imagine the situation, can't you? For those of you in the workplace, you're a work social perhaps. The wine, the spirits are flowing. But you decide to stop after whatever your limit is, maybe two drink glasses or whatever. And you stop and someone else buys you round and they say, are you having another one? And you say, no, I've had enough. And then verse 4 really kicks in. They're, they're surprised. They don't join them in their reckless wild living and they may heap abuse on you. So the the insult, the abuse comes when we set a limit and don't go with the flow, the flow of the world or our natural desires. The NLV, which you may have open in front of you, talks about, they're surprised you don't join them in their reckless wild living. Um, the word flood is in there. Older um, phrases, the flood of dissipation. But nobody knows what dissipation means. Um, but it's that idea of a, of a flood. Uh, over in Frankwell, we know about floods in Shrewsbury. Yes. Thankfully, the walls keep most of it out. But there were some big floods last year um, and the start of this year. And, you, and whenever there's floods, all the warnings, aren't there? Don't try to walk through the floods. And it was uh, Twelve inches of flood water will, will sweep your car away. Flowing water is incredibly strong and powerful. The pressure is on. And Peter says, "You will, your own desires will be to go with the flow, to go with the flood. But Peter wants to divide you from yourself. It's that God's will, the good life, the <coughs> holiness that God wants, is the way we go, not our own desires. When I was... After as a student, I worked in a church in London, quite a big church. Um, I used to clean the loo's and make coffee, but but not simultaneously. And um, (laughs) and there was a a story told um, at the time I heard about it um, of a a hotel across from the church and a doorman on the church. And he'd stand there Sunday and watch um, two services and hundreds of people leave the church. They all smiles on their faces. And that led to him becoming a Christian. What gave these people that sense of joy and delight as they walk out Sunday by Sunday? And he became a Christian. It was the joy of the Christians that led him to faith, but quickly he found that Christ, who is full of joy and goodness and delight, his way divides us from our desires and from the wider world. So there was this hotel that the doorman had a bit of a racket going. If you were a guest and you said, uh, can, "Can you get a taxi? I needed to." Uh, and, and, and it was going to be a, a long trip, therefore a lucrative deal for that taxi driver, the doorman would call one of their mates, the taxi driver, and so they'd call one of the taxi drivers they had a deal with, who would come pick up the guest, and the doorman would get a cut of that lucrative um, ride. And this doorman stopped doing that. Do you think his colleagues were rejoicing at the honesty and integrity of this newly converted Christian? No. It made life hard for him. So in coming to Christ, because of the joy of the believers, this guy found a real tension. Jesus was dividing him from his own desires, and he's been divided from his colleagues. And we see one Peter, not just Jesus dividing us from ourselves, but Jesus dividing the church from the world. What made those Methodists in Wednesday get attacked is what they stopped doing. And it made them a distinct group. So that the, 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 the riots weren't just about um, John Griffiths Jr., it's about those Methodists, those people who lived that way. And it made a difference between those Methodists and, and the community, even the church-going community. But it was dividing really, the church from the ways of the world. And Peter wants to see us divided in Jesus uh, from the church divided from the world. Now, the, the relevance of this teaching for our age should be really obvious, isn't it? Isn't it really obvious that we live in a society where the flood of pressure is on, To do what you desire because it's natural, good and right. That is the the sweep of society. And of course, if society is saying do that, and your desires are saying do that, you need the strength of Jesus in you to resist. To stand firm, to say no. that our natural desires aren't what God wants of us. And what seems normal is actually living in ignorance. That book, The, the Plausibility Problem, is a really, really good book. Um, I'll thoroughly recommend it. I haven't read the others. I'm sure they're fantastic as well, but that one is, 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 is brilliant. And um, Eshaw is somebody who is same-sex attracted. And he knows that, he must res- that the call to God's holiness is contrary to his desires, because that's true of all of us. So he's not being an odd one out within the church, he's showing that the church is the odd one out in the world because all of us, fundamentally, we're called to put aside our desires for the sake of God's will. But it is people like Ed Shaw who, in the particular challenge, the particular depth of flood in this area of human sexuality, they they really are great examples of what the normal Christian life is like. And that book shows us how the more we model a normal Christian life, the more it's normal that in our church we know that our desires, in all sorts of areas, are contrary to God's will. The more that's normal in church, then those who are particular feel this pressure, they can say, but in church I'm normal. Because I'm following Christ. I'm pursuing holiness. Not my desires, not the way of the world. And it makes the church distinct. Peter says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So church is this distinctive people of God. And it is precisely that distinctiveness that enables us to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. For the sake of the world. Jesus divides us from ourselves so that ourselves can be fully Christ-like. And Jesus divides the church from the world so that the church can be Christ-like for the sake of the world. Even when the world doesn't always agree. There's such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I could uh, give you tons of examples of the way that, in the area of sexuality, Christian distinctiveness, though despised by the world, there are other voices, you know, there are so many voices saying, but actually the world's way is chaotic. And maybe in time as the, the chaos of the world's ways becomes more and more apparent with a, a huge amount of suffering, no doubt. Um, just the, the mess of the world, my prayer is that the Christian way, which seems weird to the world, will suddenly become wonderful to the world. Because here in church, people model. The joy of a life that perceives God's will, not our, not our own desires. So there is a war. There is a war. <laughs> Arm yourselves with the attitude of Christ. Don't gratify your desires. Don't go with the flood of culture's ways. Follow God's good will revealed in Jesus. And that's the fight. There's a talk in these days about a culture war. And there's a big danger that Church gets involved in the culture war um, rather than pursuing Christ. So the the real battle isn't us versus them in the world necessarily taking sides in big issues. It's more the battle is within um, and it is modelling Jesus' way that is the, the key thing. So, and what I mean by this is, is, is chapter 4, verse 15, where Peter says, If you suffer, you should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. So, if you think, actually, at the work social, I need to stop after two glasses of wine, don't then start saying to all your unbelieving colleagues, don't you have more than two glasses of wine? That's very naughty. That's meddling. And if they're not believers, why should they behave like believers? Culture war can fall into meddling with people and giving lots of do's and don'ts to the world rather than holding out Jesus to the world and modelling the do's and don'ts. Because our message to the world is the gospel, it's Jesus. So, chapter four, verse five. Um, in this battle between um, human desires and God's will, and um, not Johnny in the flood of the world. Verse six. This is the reason the gospel was preached. And chapter um, four, verse where has it gone? Verse seventeen. If judgment begins with God's household, um, if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We model the transformed life and our message is the gospel that led to the transformation. We preach not morality, we model morality, we model right or wrong, but our message is the crucified and risen saviour. For it is the beauty of Jesus that draws people in. Jesus who, in his suffering and self-denial, showed such love for the world, He's the one we preach. And it's the, it's the glory that Christ has won for us that will show people why suffering might be worth it in the first place. Peter wants us to divide us from ourselves and divide the church from the world so that Christ is formed in us and Christ is modeled and preached to the world around. That's what we need it all. We need the gospel. Just say, when it feels like suffering, <clears throat> suffering is tied to glory. And it feels like just ordinary life, just in the small things, not giving in to the flood of, of, of desires. In the normal fears, that's when we shine with the, the eternal purposes of God made visible in us. Jesus divides us from ourselves. Yes, suffering will follow, but suffering leads to glory. Jesus divides the church from the world, so that the church may be purified for the world. And even if the world rejects the church, God has chosen her. And the church is precious to him. Both, have a look at it yourself in chapter four, when you get to it in your sermon series or read it later on. In both times, in the verses 1 to 6 and then 12 to 19. Uh, Peter describes this, this battle, this collision between the way of Christ and the way of the world and our desires. And in both situations, he points us then to the judgment. And judgment isn't fundamentally about God punishing the wicked. Fun, judgment is fundamentally about God saying what was right or wrong all along. And say so judgment day is about God saying to the church, You suffered. You were neglected. You were sometimes ignored or worse. But I tell you, you were right all along. And judgment, I will reveal that that was the case. Because you are my chosen people, holy and dearly loved. In three times in this letter, Peter um, describes desires <coughs> versus God's purposes. The letter shot through with... The church being distinct from the world. And also three times in this letter he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Be alert, be aware, be sober minded, think straightly about these things. Think rightly about these things. (laughs) Think rightly about Jesus dividing us from ourselves because he is so much better. Think rightly. Be sober about the fact that church will be different from the world, and sometimes painfully so. But the gospel that made us distinct is the same gospel that says, glory is coming, our vindication is certain, Jesus is coming full of grace and truth for us. Full of grace. (coughs) Chapter 1, verse 13. Preparing your mind for action and being fully sober... Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please arm us with the right attitude. May our minds be clear and sober about the way you divide us from ourselves and the way you divide us, the church, from the world because these are your good purposes, your glorious purposes. We pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in the calling you've given us to build our lives on Christ, rejected but honoured by you so that with single-minded devotion to you, We may look forward with with hope to the glory to be revealed in the last days. In Jesus' name, Amen.